Okay, sure. I just cleared my throat, so I think I'm ready to boogie. I think both Brian and I are getting over colds from various reasons. But, uh, yeah. I think you just exposed to the world that we're way too close to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Yours is from your juice diet. That's what I blame it on. Mine was from my daughter staying in daycare. Yeah. Little kids go around, they lick doorknobs, and they bring they bring things home. Presents to their parents. It's awesome. Yeah, I'm going to teach her. That's probably my next thing is to teach her not to lick doorknobs. But that being said, all right, cool. Let's kick off. This is episode number 31 of the Hot Isle. Uh, my name is Brent Piotti, and with me? Brian Carpenter. Mr. Carpenter, awesome to uh, hear from you again. And uh, we've got a very special guest on today. But uh, first of all, the goal of the show is to educate you on the world of CICD, so continuous integration and continuous delivery or deployment, uh, depending on how you want to, to use the, the terminology. But also, how is CICD being used? Um, to speed application delivery and also reduce errors um, of the code that you uh, release. So with us, we have none other than Kosuke Kawaguchi, who is uh, basically the, the guy who, who kind of started this. I don't know if you started it necessarily, but you certainly made it more more open um, and, and uh, certainly a buzzword today. So from Jenkins, formerly Hudson, but uh, Kawasuki, how are you doing today? Uh, good. Well, thank you. I, mean, the, uh, I think you gave me too much credit. But. <laughs> I wouldn't say that. I've done a lot of research on on, uh, on uh, your past and your pedigree, and uh, you know we're going to get into that. But um, certainly, a very cool career and uh, kind of where it's brought you today. So, so Kosuke, tell me about um, kind of your background, you know, where you came from, and uh, what you're doing today, and uh, you know just a little bit about yourself. Right, so I, I, you know, I grew up in Japan, in, in Tokyo, and um, you know, in, uh, when I got old enough, I came over to the United States, and I was actually working for the Sun Microsystems, which is no more. It saddens me, but that's where you know what eventually became Jenkins was born, and then that that sort of like formed my basically the foundation of the software engineering career. And then since then, I've been moving on to you know do the do the stuff around Jenkins, which I hope to talk more about later. Yeah. yeah. So when you came over to work for what did you basically come over specifically to work for Sun? Were you recruited over? Did you uh, did you move in and then go? Let's go find the best job possible. Or how did that how did that manifest? Yeah. So I was involved in this like a side project, side open source project in in Japan, and then that was around XML. Um, and um, so it, and one of the the people in Japan that I used to work with, I think he was a close friend with the one of the distinguished engineer at Sun Microsystems. And my suspicion is that they talked about some things, and then this, you know, this guy basically, so like, put this idea in the in, in this distinguished engineer's head that hey, there's there's a guy who you might want to bring over, and then so I, you know, one an email landed in my inbox like uh, one day. I remember I was in Australia at that time, and I was like, wow, this is an interesting opportunity. And um, so that's that kind of you know in the moment in the whim of a moment, I decided to basically come to the U.S. That's awesome. And so w when you first got to Sun and you were working for Sun Microsystems, uh, I guess prior to the Hudson project, can you kind of explain what you were doing um, that kind of led to the Hudson project being created? What were you working on before? And then how did the Hudson project start? All right. So I, so I was a part of a group who 
that's Java EE, Java Enterprise Edition. And like, you know, if you don't know what that is, you can mentally picture like a big platform. So that, that, that project as a whole, I'd say, have a couple of hundred of people working on it. And you know, it's a, there's a lot of components in it. And then I belong to one of the team who was doing this, what's called XML data binding. It's about you know the being able to like take the Java objects and then easily read and write into XML. So this was a team of maybe three or four engineers and then spread in two time zones. And um, I I I basically was like a guy who breaks builds left and right. So and I commit I made some changes, and then uh, this was back in the day the version control system where it was really easy to like only commit a part of your change and forget the others. And then so I pushed those change up. And then sometimes some my other colleagues would notice that the after he updates his workspace with my change, like the source code no longer compiles. So I get the phone call like, hey, I think you touched this file the last time and it's referencing this stuff that doesn't exist. Like can you look into it? And he's you know he's right that I I didn't quite get the job right. So I, I figured I wanted to basically have a software that catches that kind of problem that I code before somebody else does. And then so I, I wrote this little program that eventually grown into grown into Jenkins. And so I, it's interesting, though, I mean, at that time, as you're working on, uh, you know, J2EE and doing all these things, that by that point, with all the problems that you're saying you were encountering, right, like you breaking code or putting new things in frequently or trying to figure out who changed what, it's amazing yeah. that at that day and time, there wasn't somebody who'd already solved this problem. Well, the, the, so the, you know, I mentioned that you gave me too much credit. So those problems have been, I think, identified, and there are some softwares. Um, and um, so I remember the one that's called the cruise control. Uh, that was, I think, the by far the dominant open source CI server back then. Um, and then there was another one that actually basically you know, ripped off from. It's called the damage control. So this idea of having a software that's always monitoring your source code repository and constantly building and testing has been around. Um, but then, so you know, I, I also, I, aside from being breaking the views left and right, I also just enjoy writing programs. And then so the work wasn't keeping me busy enough. So I had all these like a little open source projects going. So you know, the uh, Jenkins kind of started as just one of yet another open source project of mine. Um, and then I just uh, also, this was around the time when, uh, because I was working in Java EE, but I never actually written an application by using this platform. So I was producing something that I don't eat, you know, I don't consume by myself. It's, that didn't sit very well with me. So I was looking for some opportunity to write a software that uses Java EE. And then so this felt like a perfect combination of, oh, here's like a one, the potentially nifty idea. And then there's somebody has already implemented something so I can basically make it look like it, but I can use the Java EE as a stack to kind of, you know, eat, uh, eat my own dog food, so to speak. <laughs> so Kosuke, um... In regards to you said you talked about uh, cruise control and damage control and some other you know CI platforms out there. Um, what drove you to create the Hudson project? So, right. So, like I said, part of it is you know, I, I just I had this itch on my own, and I think I tried to. I think I was I used the damage control for a little bit, and it just didn't scale at all. As in, like as it accumulated a little bit of data, it started 
like a gamble down. And then two, like I, I wanted, I just, I just like writing programs. So I thought, well, this could be interesting program to write. So it's, it wasn't so much like a, after a meticulous planning, but you know, I just, I just started writing it. And then I've been doing the similar things. Like I have a lot of projects left and right. And most of them didn't get the kind of traction that the Jenkins has gotten or the Hudson has gotten, but uh, this one somehow is stuck. So we, we read a little bit in the beginning of Jenkins. Um, and so there's there's Hudson, essentially, and you started working on that, and you were with Oracle. Um, it, it, you know, dra- drama aside, there's some notes around there being a dispute and then kind of Jenkins forking off from Hudson. Was that still all inside of Oracle, or was that after kind of the, your Oracle time? So, um, yeah, so this, this was a kind of very interesting experience in, in hindsight i'd imagine a divorce would be kind of like that like if you're in the middle of it like it really occupies you and after a while like you you can sort of start to gain perspective and then like you can move on um so it, that was actually after i left oracle if i remember correctly it's all like what it's 2011 or so so it's starting to become hazy on me but um so i left you know i left um well, toward the end of Sun, um, if, you know, Sun was about to be acquired by Oracle, and then the, um, the EU put this, um, I guess, anti uh, anti monopolies investigation or something like that. Antitrust, yeah. Yeah, antitrust, yeah, yeah. So, so that put the whole acquisition on hold for a good half a year or so. So during which the as, as a Sun employee, you're basically put into this holding pattern. So like uh, nothing was 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 changing, and then it's sort of like I started feeling like you know I'm wasting time here, but at the same time like you know if if at the end of that tunnel like I get the experience of Oracle, and if I'm gonna leave anyway, then I thought maybe like what what harm would it do to you know experience Oracle? You know I might like it, and then I could stick around, and if it, nothing changes again, then I could I could leave, um, and then I you know I didn't dissolve. Or, you know, it didn't be all that different. And so I sticked around for a little bit. Um, and then the, in the experience of Oracle, I think the three or four months, but I, you know, it, wasn't, it wasn't for me. So I left the, I left the company, but um, this, this Hudson project, because that started as my hobby project, and I really, you know, as far as the community of open source developers are concerned, like I, I was there, you know, I was their contact, and then they never thought of it as a Sun Microsystems project. Um, and then so when I left uh, Oracle, I kept working on Hudson and the people kind of expected that to continue. Um, and then after, I think uh, maybe half a year or so after I left Oracle, like Oracle, I think decided that they, after all, they wanted to do something with Hudson. So, um, but I think the, uh, the guy who was handling it really kind of did it in a poor way. So, you know, they, from what they saw, well, they, I think they, you know, they felt, he felt that this is, this project belongs to the Oracle, which in some sense it's true, like because I'm producing some part of it while I was employed, um, but he, you know, there's as a company they really didn't have any effective control on on anything. Like there's nobody, nobody contributing code, nobody know anything about that. Um, so he decided that the way to establish the control is by you know by by owning the name. So basically he's, he registered a trademark on the name Hudson and said. Well, you know, the Oracle Corporation owned the name Hudson. So if you want to keep, if you guys, you know, those Mr. Open Source developers, if you guys want to keep playing with Hudson, then you got to follow our rules. And then, so that really didn't, like, you know, come across very well to these people in the community. So they said, well, we, we basically, we collectively said, well, 
if you want to keep the name, you, know, you register the trademark, and we don't we can't fight in, in the court of law like that with you. But um, so I'll give you the name, but we're going to pick a different name to, and move our playground elsewhere. So that's yeah. Sort of <laughs> in reading about it, um, you know, Hudson, it looks like the the graphic is similar. But basically, reading your blog, you're like, hey, I'm going to do something that has like kind of an English sounding um, butler name. And yeah. you came up with Jenkins and, and uh, the logo, which we see every, everywhere. Was that kind of just uh, <laughs> like a stick a jab at him? Like, hey, you can keep Hudson, but we're going to do something better and different. Um, but uh, at least people will understand the likeness. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that, right. So I named, I named the software after a person because I, you know, from relatively early on, I, I thought of this project, this software as another person in the development team. And I thought the uh, butler is kind of people who serve other people, so I thought it'd be, it'd be sensible. And then in my Japanese mind, the Hudson sounded like a British butler name. And I don't get the same. Uh, if I ask the Brits, they don't always necessarily think that way. So maybe I, I, maybe I named it incorrectly. But in case of Jenkins, there actually was a, um, a page in Wikipedia that talks about and have the list of all the known fictional and actual butler names, like with the index, so you know, from A to Z. So there are a bunch of us in the project got together, like I look at that list from top to down and, and looking for the name that's, that, that was available. I, li so, I uh, like it. I like Jenkins. And I, I love the story of basically, you know, serving developers. And is, is there a is there a thought process behind Jenkins, like you said, the maybe the CI thing had been around for a while, and CD, um, you know, maybe that was around as as development kind of shifted from waterfall to what people maybe are calling agile now, and wherever it was in between, were there things that you said were like key tenets of what you were trying to do with Jenkins um, that were different than what you'd seen before besides the scalability? Were there other things that were missing that you said, I'm really going to solve these problems. I'm going to make it much better for people like me who need good service for their code and for their, you know, essentially their delivery of that code. Yeah. So one of the key, I guess the insights or key thing that I, that I thought I needed to put into, you know, into the software is this idea of extensibility. So, um, you know, I, I mentioned that I was working on this external data binding technology, right? So that was also put in open source and then in the hope that we gain some, you know, community contributions around it. But it never really happened in the scale that we hoped for. And then, so that got me thinking about, like, you know, really hard about what does it take to create a thriving open source community? So the, and then the conclusion that I came to is like, you know, if you try to have all these people from around the world who don't know each other working on the same code base, it's going to be really just painful. You know, people have strong opinions about how to do things. You know, sometimes some guys have deadlines, some time, sense of time frame that's not always shared with other people. And then so instead I thought what would be better is actually to like turn this into like a lots of small independent you know, the pieces that you can, you know, that now we call plugins. Right? So we, we designed this, both the software and the social structure of the community so that like everyone can bring their own little piece into the community. And then we create this incentive for these developers to basically, you know, they take what they produced and then uh, you know, make it very easy for them to get into the hands of users. 
Because as a developer, like you know, as an open source developer, the good part of motivation is your stuff being used by people and get appreciated for that, right? So when we provide make it easy for you know for the for for their PCs to be used by other users, and then you know, make it easy to get feedbacks like that, and people like people like it. Um, and then from the user's perspective, like it really creates it, you know, it makes the functionality of the software more richer. You know, we have when as soon as you install Jenkins, you have all these little plugins that integrate Jenkins into just about anything you can imagine. So it you know it, it sort of enrich it, it sort of increases the value of the whole ecosystem and this creates this positive feedback cycle where you know the more people use it the more people start writing these little plugins and then you know and, and that makes the platform more useful bringing more users and so on and so forth. So there's a you know early on I had to put a lot of effort to actually make this technical foundation to enable this kind of fine grain modularity. But um, so that was kind of like my my bet for the key thing that I thought I needed into the software, and I think it paid off really well. Sure, thanks, Kasuki. So, uh, question for you: Let's kind of take a step back, um, away from you know just Jenkins or any product specific, but CI/CD. First of all, what what is it, and and what's it all about? So I think the when the, right, so it kind of started as continuous integration of the one with the keyword for this kind of software to catch on, and then the um, I think you know back then the people generally used that term to refer to like automated builds and test execution that happen all the time, as in like every time you commit or every night or something like that. So it actually wasn't so many not many people were actually doing integration automatically. And certainly, at some microsystems, when I was where I was using this you know, in Java E group, the, much of the hard integration work was still somewhat manual. It took a, it took a, you know, quite some time before automation got to that point. But um, anyway, this was around the time when the economy wasn't doing great, and so there was also lots of incentive to do more with less people. And so the idea of automation had obvious appeal. Um, and I guess, you know, I suppose many other people like me who breaks build left and right, so I think they find this software useful. And so the continuous integration kind of caught on as a way of, you know, the getting more value out to the test by you know, running it all the time and catching the program early on. But, you know, this once people got the idea of automation, you know, it didn't stop there, right? The, once you automate something, there's always more things you can automate. You know, things like the actual, in, you know, integrations. Or things like uh, deployment, or the you know, testing can get pretty complex, right? If you're building a web app, web app, you need to deploy the app in some places, do some additional like a resetting of the database or seeding of it, and then you run some you know the battery of tests for a while, and then you shut that down. And you know, there's all these more you know what used to be done coordinated by humans, like uh, one by one, these things started to be automated. And then, so the next thing you look around, like it's no longer just build and test automation. There is the entire sort of what you might consider this pipeline is automated, or like it, it starts to become suddenly all that quite realistic for many companies to do that level of automations. And those people felt like you know they they started to see some very significant you know the benefits beyond just automating build and test. And so I think it warrants the new term. I think that's why that's why nowadays I think the people talk about continuous delivery as even broader automations at what, how we develop software. 
So that's how I think of how this term has evolved. But at, at the heart of it, it's really just automating one thing at a time. You know? Right, right. And, and I understand just uh, from the research, it was a CICD is a concept introduced by a guy by the name of Martin Fowler who developed extreme programming. Have you met this guy? No, I, I, have, I have seen his picture, but no, I haven't met him. <laughs> yeah. So it seems like it's been around for a little bit, at least the concept of CICD. Yes. Um, but you know, one question I had was, so I read a blog, but it was an Accenture blog, and it was comparing uh, the differences between continuous delivery and continuous deployment, right? So I've heard it both ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so are the, are the differences that vast, or are they just subtle nuances, and do we really need to differentiate the two? So the um, you know I'm a you know I'm an engineer by trade and then so the that engineer like a pragmatic engineering part of me kind of rolls the eyes with this kind of distinction in that as I said I, in in some ways they are all about just automating different parts of it right so when you say continuous deployment the emphasis is on kind of like automating the deployment part as in like you, know, you take the software that was produced by well, often some other teams. And then you're responsible for well making it run in very non-trivial ways, and then, so let's think about what can you do to automate that as much as possible. So that's the kind of the mindset behind the continuous deployment. The continuous delivery is kind of like a, the, when you, when somebody uses that term, the emphasis is more on the whole chain from the like a, the change the source code all the way to the functioning running software in production, and then so. If you if you are like an engineer like me, you might think, well, you know, they're really just not, not all that different, just focusing on different aspects of automations. But at the same time, they are actually very different in the sense that if you talk about you know the deployment automations, that's a concern for the you know, technical guy. Right? Like a, maybe it's a you know it's a big thing for ops guy, but let's say if you are a, a CIO or like a, somewhat detached from the actual software development, maybe you're CEO. And then the continuous deployment is really just like a lower level. I mean, continuous deploy, yeah, deployment or a continuous integration is really like a lower level concern. But the by when you use the term continuous delivery, you could actually talk about the benefit of automation in ways that the business people would understand. Things like, well, when you come up with a new marketing campaign, like you can launch it far more quickly than how we've been doing it before. Well, let's say if you discover a problem in the, say, the, you know, the, your mileage program, we can get the fix done out in two days as opposed to two weeks. And that's sort of like a big thing. That's actually a pretty big thing for people outside this, like a, you know, in the technology field. So by using, by, in, in some ways, by coining that term and being able to associate with that with, in ways that make sense to people outside the field, the engineers, and, you know, engineers and ops people, it became a lot easier for us to gain support and explain why we are doing why we are doing this and why it matters. So uh, to me, that's like a biggest, you know, the biggest contribution of coining this new term, continuous delivery. And so any of these things, right? Continuous integration, continuous uh, deployment, continuous delivery, any of the, these things, they seem to have um, a home inside of agile delivery uh, or agile development. Um, but my question to you is, and I have my own opinions on this, what about people who haven't quite um, evolved their 
their development teams or, or their processes to be able to support agile. Um, and so they're still doing things like waterfall or even maybe further beyond that. Is there, is there a world where any of these things fit inside of non-agile deployment and development methods? Yeah, I, I think so. Sort of in some ways, these terms are trying to paint the ultimate, like a goal state, right? So like an ultimate nirvana of like where you can be. But you know, the, the good thing about this being quote unquote just another, yet another automation is that there's always something you are doing that you can, you can automate. So at, at some microsystems, like we weren't certainly agile, but um, nonetheless, it, it was still useful to be building the tip of the source code every time someone commits it. And then you know, regardless of the development methodology, like you, you know, a lot of people see the value in that. So if you start with like a little things like that, um, and then like you use it for a while, and then you sort of you see the you see the benefit, and then you can always think about like another next step to automate. And then, so if you keep repeating on these baby steps, you kind of you know, it takes you quite far. And even if that's not quite like you know the same same thing as let's say this ultimate ideal picture that you know somebody else might be trying to draw i think you know i think that's still okay and so on the on the converse side as technology or changes you know and things are going you know faster and faster every day more businesses are demanding more of the teams and like you said do more with less now it's like now because they can see the the benefit of tools they're saying do even more with even less and they keep driving this thought process does yeah. does any of these continuous integration delivery development is there an even higher impact against new technologies so containers microservices all of these kind of things is it is it even better because of that or um is there something more that needs to be done yeah i think there's some sort of you know the in some ways i think of the rise of automation i think was one of the the input that fed into this, like I'd say, the modern runtime systems, like, you know, the containers, like Kubernetes, missiles, that sort of things. Because if you're doing it, the if you're deploying, if everyone was deploying manually, like we were doing 10 years ago, then, you know, you don't, you just don't, you don't get the, you don't get the, you don't grok the benefit of these modern things. And then, so I think it, it fed into that. And now that those things are available, like that, that comes back to us and then, well, we have this like a very sophisticated runtime system that offers the kind of things that enables the kind of thing that was previously not really possible. And then so now the, you know, the challenge is on our side to actually improve the automation, the improved software like Jenkins, so that it really, like, it really, like, put the, it really makes the like, a runtime system like Kubernetes shine. Right. So you know we can we can do things like you know, elastic deployment for one-off deployment that only used during the test and goes away, um, and things like that, which you know is previously unthinkable. And then so we need to evolve to keep up with that. So I expect this to kind of go on. Right. We we we, de we leverage new functionality that drives a new demand, which I think fosters innovations in other fields and it comes back to us, and so on and so forth. So, uh, uh, Kosuke, let's let's kind of dive into the world of Jenkins, right? So, um, as, as you stated, this uh, this started off as uh, as Hudson, then as an open source project uh, called Jenkins. Um, what, like, kind of walk us through 
through a day in the life of a developer before and after Jenkins? Mm, yeah, well, mm, that's interesting. So the, I think, well, yeah, so the thing is the software has evolved over time. And then so it's like, you know, it's every year, like you get to do something a little new. So maybe I guess sounds like maybe we should focus on what, what we can do today and before. Um, yeah, so, 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 it, well, so if you contrast, like, uh, the, uh, if you contrast, if you contrast what it was when 10 years ago when I was at Sun versus what it is now, you know, like now, for example, you can, people are committing new changes, not into direct, not into the repository straight away, but by using something like a pull request or code review mechanisms. So somebody writes up a change and then he proposes a change to the rest of the team. And then so Jenkins already kicks in to start you know, testing out this new proposed change by writing, by running this suite of test suites. And you know, by B Jenkins being a server, you can run this test in, in fairly like a large parallels, massive parallel scale, so that the test would complete far more quickly than you can run on your laptop. So back then, whereas how it was, you know, you code up your change and you just push into the repository and then you, you know, you discuss that in the, in the status meeting next time. And then the, or the tests do not get run at most, the test gets run like a nightly by somebody set up this cron job that checks out the new, new binary and then run the test and then put the report somewhere and you get that in the email. So, you know, you, the, the earliest point in which you get the feedback is maybe like a day later. So it's may contrast that with today where like you can you're getting the result even before your change lands into the team repository. And so as far as this testing, this is something uh, one of the only things that I could actually pick up while talking to James Waters over Pivotal. Um, you guys talk way above my head, so sometimes I have to like read it five different times. You talk about developing kind of to a test. In other words, you know I have I have these goals that I want to do, and mm -hmm. so you create the test and then write the application. And then once the test completes and it all tests out correctly, including everything that you'd written to before. So you kind of have a, you, a rolling cumulative test. Mm -hmm. um, that's, I mean, that's a very interesting concept, right? It helps with uh, quality and it helps make sure you're not breaking other things, but whose responsibility is it to, to write that test? Is that on the developer? Is that the first thing they do before they develop the code or does somebody else on the team do that typically? Or where does all the testing portion come from? Where's the intelligence of that? Mm. So testing, I, mean, I think you're describing test-driven development or TDD, and then in that in that you know in that scheme, like, uh, yeah, you're expected to write the test first as a goal state as a formal description of the goal state. So in that case, you and every engineer, every developer in the team is responsible for writing a test. Um, and then, so you, you probably are expected to you know when before you commit that change, you're expected to pass that test. Uh, but they, you know the software like Jenkins is still useful to make sure that they not all the other all the other tests have not been broken, and then even and also even where people are doing TDD and also not many people are exactly doing TDD, but there are some other kind of tests that needs to be written, that like a test software at a, a little bigger scale, like after integration, right? So like test the software as a whole piece, not just the individual tiny unit that tends to be used for TDD. And then, so these tests needs to be often developed by some other set of people, or you know, sometimes in the same by the same people, but with by mentally putting a different hat on. 
And then those things might be called like an integration test or acceptance test or stuff like that. Um, and then so you need to kind of coordinate how these things are run. Um, so that's where the soft automation like Jenkins can kicks in. That's awesome. So, and, and obviously the testing, when you're talking about testing at scale and things like that, um, we hear these, we hear these stories of, uh, you know, the Facebooks and the Googles and all the, all the cool kids, um, are updating their kind of their, their entire code base and their user experience in production hundreds of times a day, you know, maybe it's thousands of times a day. What's the reality of those stories? And then, you know, is is it stuff like Jenkins or is it Jenkins specifically or even CloudBees that's enabling them to be able to do that? So the automation, I think, is obviously a crucial part of it. Um, that is, without that, you, 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 can't, you, know, you can't get to the point of deploying anywhere near that kind of speed and frequency. But I think it also takes a lot more than that. Like, uh, some of it is like a mindset change. Um, and then that's not, that's not up to the tooling to do. So I think we are certainly you know, enabling those. And then there are lots of you know, other people in the world evangelizing those ideas and helping in some other aspects of it. So I don't think, and I, I didn't claim that the Jenkins Snow Cloud is single-handedly pushing for it. But I think we are the one of the big, you know, key, key pieces in the puzzle to move this forward. And so, uh, and I, just out of curiosity, when you talk about the tooling and things like that, especially given the history of Jenkins and Hudson and, you know, where things came from, you know, we noticed most of this is written in Java. Um, and from a uh, consumer or from a, uh, I guess, a general, I don't know, opinion that I hear around, everybody's kind of, you know, maybe there's a lot of things where people still use Java. There's a lot of people who are developing in new languages today, uh, pushing, you know, Go seems to be brought up constantly. If you are, is there any thought around, does Jenkins get a refresh in a different code base? Is, is Java, is there, is Java simply because you came from Sun or are there other things that have benefit there as far as scale and, and other types of support? Mm. So, um, so the, I think the, probably what's most important for users is that the, in most, in, most of the time, it doesn't really matter to you as a user or what language Jenkins is written in. You know, uh, because you build, yeah, yeah, I mean, Jenkins can be used to build any software. And in, in fact, quite a bit of people uses it from, let's say, embedded you know, device development in C++ to, you know, Go or Ruby or Python or .NET. You know, many people, are, many companies are, say, polyglot. You know, they have lots of different projects in different languages going on. So, you know, I, I don't think... I, I wouldn't be surprised if there are some people who don't even know that the Jenkins was written in Java. Um, now, regarding your question of, like, you know, do, do I ever think about rewriting Jenkins from scratch in another language? Mm, it's kind of, yeah, maybe if I had, like, enough enough beer. But I think in practice, you know, because we, we, drive, we drive so much power from existing ecosystem and people's installations that you know all these things and then so I, I feel like this rewrite from scratch is a trap that i need to avoid well you, you know like, you seem to like those side projects i was just trying to give you a challenge yeah yeah no i do like <laughs> so like I, you know one summer i did uh, this project in dotnet i wrote a video game in dotnet uh, and then so I, I do like those other languages too um but yeah so maybe maybe sometimes someday it ever it, maybe yeah sometimes it happens if this company doesn't keep me busy enough huh? So Can we get our hands on that video game? <laughs> yeah, it, it actually. Well, 
well, that, that's kind of a whole new story. But um, so I, and I also made the video game very extensible. And so what happened is like during the summer break, there are lots and lots of kids which I come in and start developing these little pieces like new graphics, new building and stuff like that. And they like they move away. So I, I kind of in some way I proved that this model of creating the same extensible community as a means of driving lots of contribution. It really panned out very well in other projects as well. Yeah. Well, it, if it's not Minecraft, then um, and it's that extensible, I'd like to hear about it because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what what is this? Tell us real quickly about the game. Uh, so th there is a, so this is like a train simulation game. So in Japan, this like a train is a big thing, just like in the US, the cars are a big thing. So in this game, you basically you 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 uh, you um, you own the railroad company, and then you, you you ride down the track and you control like what trains leave what stations and where it goes, and you can watch this thing. It's a little bit like a SimCity, but with a lot of emphasis on actual train parts of it. So there's like one company who made a very successful game out of it when I was small, and then I want I basically I was trying to re-implement that. That's awesome. I like it. So that's uh, is that free train? Is that what it is? Yeah. Oh, yes. So you've, uh, you've, you've done your homework, sir. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited about it. We actually, I have a really good friend, uh, Jeremiah Dooley, who uh, uh, loves trains. And I th he builds actual model trains. And I think his entire third floor of his mansion is all like a big train. And oh, so wow. uh, um, I'm excited as soon as we get done talking about this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him know about the game. <laughs> and I have a feeling he'll be part of your developer community by the end of the weekend. So. <laughs> Go ahead, Brent. I, so, Kasuke, I digressed uh, yeah. us to video games about trains, but let's do this thing. No, I think that was an interesting topic. It's always fun to learn about what makes you tick, too. So, um, speaking of community, uh, you you brought up uh, earlier on this, you know, the idea of extensibility and plugins. Um, doing the research, it looks like you guys have like a lot of plugins for integration, right? So, a thousand plus things like Active Directory, Amazon Web Services, Campfire, Slack. Like mm -hmm. VMware, all sorts of stuff. Like, um, are these all community developed, or is that something that that you know you at Jenkins or even at Cloudbees are developing to integrate with with other things? Tell us about just kind of that that whole API and and uh, integration world. Yeah, so some of them, like the one you mentioned, Active Directory, for example, I wrote that one. I mean, I started that one, um, and then some others, and then you know sometimes I write. I start a plugin to kind of you know get the point across that here here's how he intended this hook to be used, and then um, you know I, I might leave it dormant, and then the other people in the community would kind of come on and take over, and then so again we we made this like a social structure so that that kind of takeover happens more naturally than you know more naturally and more implicitly as opposed to like a requiring formal ceremony, and in some other cases like I say Slack plugin like you know I I didn't. I didn't even know until much later that, that like somebody wrote that plugins. I think in, in some way that sort of like really you know, underscores the success of this distributedness or the scale of the community. In which like you know, I didn't even know that some plugin existed, but somebody did it and then put it in the community, and it's been maintained quite nicely. So, so the what's the? Go ahead. Yeah, so the cloud is, you know, that's something similar. So we sometimes, like, we think the particular use cases are more important. And then so we spend some concerted effort, you know, developing plugins. Um, and then, but once we put into the community, like, the community is really good at, like, scratching itches incrementally. Like, you know, the one guy, there will be a lot of people who will be doing drive-by bug fixes and drive-by contributions. And that really keeps it up to date. 
And you know, when you have thousands of things with small company like Clavis, you can't keep everything up to date if it was entirely up to one company. So I think this is really where the power of the open source community shines. Yeah, it's cool. So in, in kind of searching through all the all the integration plugins, um, it gives you an idea of how many active users are using it. Um, one thing I was trying to find, but I, I couldn't figure it out, um, was what the most popular plugin was. So do you know that off the top of your head? Uh, yes, but that's actually kind of skewed because there are some plugins that we just bundle out of the box. So just by starting Jenkins, you get that plugin, and it doesn't necessarily mean you're using it. So if you look at the stats, the most of the popular, like a top five or 10 plugins are like that, the, the one that we bundle in the core. So I don't know if it's fair to count them. But in terms of the, uh, the plugins that are outside those core circle, that's still very popular. Like uh, the one that I can think of is a Git plugin. So like a lot of people obviously uses Git, and, and so that's kind of you know, very naturally very popular. There's a bunch of plugins around the, the static code analysis. Those are also very popular. And on more like that note, it's like a plugins that like that adds um, that changes the color of the of the, the things from blue to green. It's called the green ball plugin. The, the, so as a, as a like a color of success, like a traditionally Jenkins use blue, which made apparently made no sense to Western people. So somebody wrote a plugin that changed <laughs> it to green. The green is a sign of success, and then so everyone was like, "Oh, we need this plugin," and so that's very, very popular. I need that. I need that plugin just like every day. I just need like uh, a light to come on in my room that's green, so I feel good, <laughs> feel successful. That's awesome. Um, so now let's let's get into um, CloudBees. You know, so CloudBees is what keeps you busy today. Um, mm -hmm. And so we started with Hudson. Uh, now we have Jenkins and the open source version and. Uh, all the things involved with that. Where where does CloudBees fit into this this whole Jenkins story? Yeah, so in, there, I think the CloudBees play important role for the Jenkins project in, in in a few different ways. So the one is, you know, if you rely on the power of, so if you the, before CloudBees came along, so the the Jenkins project was a group of open source projects developers who most of the time, like you know, their primary responsibility is on other things. Right, so we didn't have, like, we have a lot of people, but each one of us could only spend, like, a very limited amount of time. So in that kind of setup, there's only so much you can drive as a project. You know, the, the total amount of effort the, the project can commit to, it, let's say, moving the project forward, is, is smaller. Whereas, I think in the Clubbies, we, you know, we, we built this commercial structure around it so that we can fund the time of the engineers working on open source engines. And I think that really sort of increased the speed of the, you know, the, the, the velocity of the development. And, you know, you can get to more features faster in ways that's otherwise very difficult. So I think it's really good for the community. And I think the another part is that the, um, before Clavis came along, the software like Jenkins tends to be something that a, you know, an engineer hero in one of the team might install on his own spare time into his computer. So, like you know, if, so you're like some random company somewhere in the world, and you, there's like a one team of developers, like you know, five or seven people, and then one guy decides to install it and then make the life of these seven people better. But that's that was where it stopped. But now, when you have this commercial backing that provides more comprehensive things, like you know, the, the trainings. The professional services support and so on. 
Now, it, all of a sudden, you know, Jenkins become far more real and authentic in the eyes of, let's say, people who are managing, let's say, the people, let's say, who, are, who might have titles like VPU engineering, where you're responsible for hundreds or thousands of developers, and you're trying to improve their productivity. So you can't rely on heroes to do that. So you need something more systematic and methodic. And then so now by having this Scrabbies as one of the players in the Jenkins ecosystem, you know, they can they can lean on Jenkins to get that going. So I think it really expanded our reach in terms of the users who might not be as cutting edge as this, you know, or the, the companies who you know who has to do things more systematically, you know, they can you know, re Jenkins can now reach to them. I think that's important contribution too. It is, um, and you you mentioned we. So uh, just to be clear, did you did you actually found? I know you're the, currently the CTO of CloudBees. Were you one of the founders? In other words, um, you got you kind of went out and said, "Hey, let's commercialize this and let's make it more supportable and, and create a larger audience." Or did somebody call you? Or how did that work out? So um, the, I so after I left Oracle, I, I started my own company to do this do this, and then and the Krabis came along around the same time, and then uh, they were I think they started by doing the hosted Hudson as a service, and then so we got together and we said okay it makes sense to join forces together, and then so that that's how it, you know that's that's how we, we merged into one thing. And so as people uh, with this with this enterprise experience, right, or this uh, paid experience, um, the, the different ways to consume it, whether it be kind of true enterprise where they get the software from you guys and run it in their own environment uh, versus, you know, private software as a service or, you know, the pure, you know, essentially public cloud or cloud edition of Jenkins. Um, are they really that different or why would someone choose one over the other and then which one's the most successful model for you guys? Mm. So, yeah, so we, we, we do quite a bit of the, yeah, so on one, on one end, like if you are a small shop and then you don't want to, you don't want a burden of keeping this software up and running and maintaining its infrastructure, you can use our hosted, you know, Jenkins as a service. So that's one. Um, and then on the other end of the spectrum, like if you're a large company, you want to run, you know, there's an organization, that's like engineering support organization who is responsible for, you know, the, the making the rest of the engineers in the company more productive. So these people want to operate Jenkins as a service, but inside their own firewall, targeted to their own developers. So we, you know, we have this software that called the, um, you know, we have a version of the Cloud Jenkins platform that these people can use to basically operate are public, you know, thinking sort of service-ish infrastructure on, in their own network. And then we have some something somewhere in between, like if you're just individual department organizations running master Jenkins instance, like we, you know, we have some additional features and stuff like that. So we cover quite a spectrum. So from the open source Jenkins perspective, I downloaded that the other day uh, and installed it on my Windows machine and it took like, five minutes tops, right, to download and install the thing. Mm -hmm. I didn't know what the heck to do with it after that. But um, <laughs> what what is what is that like in comparison to the, the CloudBees version? Is it very similar? Is it different, different GUI user interface? So the um, so on this like a uh, smallest end of the spectrum where you're you're hosting or you know, where you get our hosted Jenkins sort of service, then you don't even download anything, right? You just like a type in your name and sign up for the account. And then that's it. And then you get your own you get your own Jenkins instance somewhere. 
logically. If you're in the middle, then you'd be, you know, you'd be basically doing the exact same thing uh, as you have done, like a download this package software. And then you, you know, if you already are using Jenkins, you just overwrite that Jenkins with our CJ, Cloudbeats Jenkins platform, CJP version, and then off you restart and off you go. If you are running this, the other end of extreme, this like, you know, the Jenkins as a service inside your firewall, then that setup would be a little more involved. Like you have to tell us your Amazon AWS credential or OpenStack access key or stuff like that. But, you know, you still get, um, uh, but uh, yeah, you can get you can get the the whole thing up and running still relatively quickly. And this this comes back to kind of the same conversation that a lot of people have, and I think it's a very common conversation now. It's the um, do you, is it uh, is it a differentiator for you to run this software yourself and manage it, and maybe manage it for your teams or your or you know even for your customers' teams or whatever it may be versus. You know, is it easier for you to just get the benefit of it without having to run it yourself, right? And I guess that's probably where where people diverge on which ones make most sense for them. Yeah. Um, so I don't think the running just by itself is not going to be a benefit for anyone. But what often happens in this larger company is, well, one that like, they, they still have lots of assets from source code to like, uh, the test systems and whatnot inside their firewall. So having this uh, the CD server outside on public network is just logistically difficult. But probably more importantly, in large organizations, there is a lot more additional processes and idioms about how the teams develop software. So, like say, if you like, if you're Netflix, right, they have they ha they have their own stack and methodology about the deployment, and every single app they do follow the same model. And by following this model, they get a tremendous boost. So, you know, the well-maintained CD service kind of really is sort of has this idiom knowledge, organizational knowledge kind of already built into it. And then so it talks, it talks about that level of things as opposed to like ask every user to put things together from general purpose pieces. So Jenkins being extensible, it's really good at, you know, um, raising the level of abstraction up to the kind of organizational idiom that you used to. So that's what the engineering services organization tends to take on. And that's really beneficial for product teams. You know, it, it makes both following the standard easier and then you know, it, it makes the uh, doing the right things easier. And then it, you know, it, it also provides the maximum gain in the, in the least amount of effort. So, so in terms of, um, you know, making things easier, having a standardization, uh, you know, CloudBees Jenkins has, it seems like they have a ton of integrations with Docker, which I think kind of have those tenants, right? Simpler, standard, standardized. So talk to us about some of the integrations that uh, you guys have with Docker. And then second, tell us why or what it is about Docker that has really made you guys uh, develop so much integration into that ecosystem. Mm. Yeah, so the I, you know, I mentioned earlier that the um, the this you know the advancement in this uh, the CI/CD like you know they fed into the advancement in the runtime like containers like Docker, and uh, that advancement in the runtime now is coming back to the new set of advancement in CI/CD, and I think that's what's happening with Jenkins and Docker. Right? So with Docker, so part of the tenet of CD or the, the I guess the best practices in CD uh, is that the like, relatively early on you you build this, you produce this binary, 
that since then got through the rounds of testing and then gradually get hardened. And then if it passes some level of criteria, then it becomes like a chosen elite that runs in production. And so there's this notion of building something, fixing it, you know, casting it in stone, and then like, that goes through testing pipeline. So the container being immutable and all, that really like much very well with this, you know, the ideal notion of CD. So when we saw it, like, you know, the people in the, well, the Clavis people, well, in the, also people in the community felt like, oh, this is a great combination that's going to really highlight the great use of CICD and why that benefits the runtime and why that benefits the Jenkins. So I think it sort of just made the fundamental sense to sort of illustrate that use case. And so that's some of these plugins that we've developed. So, for example, like in, in Jenkins, with some of these like, Docker integrations that, that Clavis has produced, you can uh, very easily build containers and sort of remember what container it produced. And, um, and then later, when you're testing them, like Jenkins did know, oh, this thing that we are testing here came from this place, from this source code. And then so by being able to track things like that, like you really gain a lot of insight, let's say, when something breaks in production. You know, tracing that back into the source code change becomes suddenly easier. Um, if you're using container like that, then you also want to be able to you know, kick off the new set of automation when the new image shows up somewhere. You know, so maybe your framework team has produced a new version of the framework that you want to be testing against. So the fact that the new version of the framework showed up into the Docker repository, you know, you that 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 should be able to kick off some bunch of other automation that the other team have set up. So we build plugins like that. So there's a, you know, each, each little plugin focuses on like a minor you know, tiny functionality, but when you put them together collectively, like it really starts to tell a broader story. And, and that's, uh, you're kind of bringing me another question here. Um, you know, as these integrations have come, um, is, is CodeBees doing a, a kind of a, the lion's share of the con contribution to the core of Jenkins these days, or uh, I know that the, you have a great community and they're making fantastic plugins and there's a lot of contributions, but uh, is CodeBees really still doing a lot of that core development and additional functionality? Yeah, I think the traditionally core has been like maintained by a relatively small number of people. So if you look at our GitHub organization, we have about like a, what the one, a little more than thousand developers under that org. And most of them are working on their own little their own plugins in their own, you know, and then so they don't they don't really like touch core. So I'd say maybe there's only a handful of people working on the on the core, and then I think the good number of us are Clubby's employees. And, and Brent pointed out that I'm an idiot, got tongue tied. So you may have a bunch of code bees working at Cloud Bees, and they're working on code and Jenkins, but company is Cloud Bees, and I apologize for that. Right. No. <laughs> Uh, so on top of that for, you know, for things like, uh, Jenkins and the stuff that you guys are doing, you know, you mentioned earlier, right? So somebody goes and, and starts to work on, uh, continuous integration and, and delivery and development. Um, they decide to leverage cloud bees for that, you know, for the enterprise support and the functionality and things like that, but they really are still in a, in a waterfall state and they're still doing things kind of the, the old way. And they're trying to learn, you know, again, like you mentioned, baby steps. I was curious, you guys do a lot of other kind of support and consulting and things like that. Do you do people and process consulting to help people 
change what they do as a business, right? You know, so you've got a great tool. Now, how do you work with it to make your business better uh, and your processes better? I think our professional services are more focused on you know getting our product set up and then you know the, 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 its functionality used in ways that's sensible for the customers. And I think the kind of thing you're describing, I think we we lean on training. So you know, if you're new to this whole thing, and then yeah, you can you can kind of you know, like like heroes do, you can you can kind of try to figure things out on your own and do do things one step at a time, but. For some others, like getting a bit more comprehensive picture on the kind of capability that what kind of you know, where you're going to, so getting some sense of where you're trying to eventually go to before you start taking a walk um, makes sense. And then, so we have a training that kind of helps. That kind of, you know, doesn't assume that you know anything, and then get all the way up to what we consider to be some like a you know prototypical CD setup. So I, I think that that kind of fits your explanation better. But beyond that, like if you're, you know, we don't need to do the kind of pay consulting that um, uh, that change the culture of the team or anything like that. Okay, and it, you know maybe there's uh, people that can lean on for that. So yeah. if we if we roll back uh, to the integrations, one of the other ones we meant to ask you about was actually we were talking to the vSphere Cloud Native guys. Um, and they mentioned, you know, they actually mentioned like the cloud plugin. Um, and also, I think CodeStream has some sort of basis or relationship between Jenkins uh, and what the v, you know, the VMware CodeStream product is. Are you familiar with that? And do you understand kind of the relationship? Is it a is it a fork of Jenkins or is it just a plug into Jenkins? Or how does do you know anything about that? So the vSphere plugin, at least one version of it, like I wrote. I, you know, I wrote the original one, so yeah, it's kind of happy to see that name mentioned. You know, I see. Well, I mean, the, I mean, I'm preaching to the, the core area, but uh, the virtual machines and the you know vSphere has lots of interesting you know the capabilities. Like, well, let's say like uh, taking the snapshot of the machine and diverting that to snapshot, and then being able to rapidly boot into that snapshot, or like a clone the same snapshot in tenfold or hundredfold. Right, so, which is really handy for build servers. Um, you know, if you're, if you, if one day, like a year, one week before the release, you need to run lots of lots of tests, and then so you know, you that's the kind of time where you can spin up the lots of VMs from the same golden image that you know, and then at the end of the week, you can throw them all away so that you're not under you're, you're not hooked to like a, you know keep those build machines in the operational state. You just you know you can just throw them away and then bring in the new one from the snapshot. So there, like you know, the plug. I mean, the, there are the plug, plugins in Jenkins. The vSphere plugins basically enable that kind of use cases, and then there are great you know, many fans for that sort of functionality. Um, and in CodeStream, um, I, I remember seeing the website, and then I think they provide some integration with Jenkins, but I'm not intimately familiar with that, unfortunately. Um, but um, that's yet another, you know, these are these sort of, in some ways, good thing about Jenkins. Like I said, you know, there are lots of things that, that happen in the community without me even knowing. Well, it's interesting. Obviously, you guys have a, a ton of partnership out there in terms of CloudBees. Um, what I did notice on the website, though, was that uh, there was there's three very, very prominent, you know, partners um, out there. And you call them out as AWS, Microsoft, and Pivotal. Um, so I saw a lot of stuff on Pivotal Cloud Foundry, in particular that you know I was interested in, just because that's kind of what we we, we talk about, and uh, it's part of our the EMC Federation. But what is it about those three, and, and especially Pivotal, that um, kind of gets you to 
wants you want makes you want to call them out by name um, on the CloudBees website as partners. I think the, you know these companies have this you know, what I call the elastic runtime environment where you can you know where you can uh, you can spin up the new apps and then tear them down from API very very rapidly. And uh, so that kind of environment, you know, if you are the vendor of this kind of elastic runtime, you also you actually need this like a you know build and CI/CD automation story to to really have the whole picture. And then so from their perspective, I think you know Jenkins makes obvious sense to be in that picture. And then from our perspective too, you know, it really sort of highlights the you know the ultimate value that the Jenkins kind of brings to the table. If you're using this modern set of stacks, you know, from the development to the runtime, you know, we can tell these great stories. Um, and then so it kind of, in, my, in your eyes, in my eyes, it goes beyond the tactical integration, let's say, that we might have with Active Directory. It is, yes, you can authenticate your users, but that's where it kind of stuff. It's a nice story that makes sense, but it doesn't really grow from there. But the, uh, the entire continuous delivery automation that with Jenkins and in the, this elastic runtime handling hand, I think it's uh, that creates this like uh, that becomes the new starting point that that down the road further enable lots of things. So I think that's why those you know those three vendors in particular are worth mentioning. And I'm sure I'm, and I'm just a techie, so I'm sure there's um there's also some business angles to the whole thing about you know that, that I think it's also worth worth um that, well, but yeah. Anyway, so um. When you talk about being busy at uh, CodeBees, and you said, you know, if they're not key, I'm just, good gosh, CloudBees, I'm so sorry. So um, I'm just so excited about code. Um, so at <laughs> CloudBees, you know, as you talk about, um, you know, things that keep you busy at CloudBees, and you talk about, um, you know, your kind of side projects you like to do, first of all, what's keeping you busy at CloudBees today? Um, and then, uh, you know, when you're not busy, do you have some side projects you're working on right now? Yeah, so what keeps me busy at Clavis, let's start from there. There are actually two things. Like, you know, if, you, if I put my you know, open source hat on, um, we are right now in the community, we are working on the new major version of the Jenkins called Jenkins 2.0. And that's kind of a big, exciting change. If I put the Clavis hat on, like we just launched this new product called the Clavis Jenkins platform, you know, the private SaaS edition. Yeah, I mentioned about this, like a largest. Well, this is for the people who are um, uh, for the, who are running Jenkins as a service inside the company. So that that was kind of like a big baby that's been in the pipeline for a while. So that, those are two things. So let's start with Jenkins 2.0. Um, you know the the Jenkins. So Jenkins currently is like a 1.650 or so. Or so it's been doing this like a weekly train releases for 650 times. Um, and then this was kind of uh, so the the. The focus of that software still was still very much around, you know, the building and test automations, and uh, you know, all these great things that the community has done. You know, they they are all the plugins, and so if you know what's going on in the community, you can find them easily and then build like, a really great state of things. But if you're if you're a busy developer that has other priorities and they're not really all that tuned into what's going on in the Jenkins community, it's kind of difficult to put the set of you know the plugins into more comprehensive product that that's the kind of thing that people today want to do so in jenkins still low part of it is you know let's think about all these great you know improvements innovation that has happened in the community 
and then they can make curate those so that it tells a story on its own instead of like a forcing you into the plugin hunting right so and then creates a broader experience so that's kind of the thinking behind it and in particular we are adding this like a brand new subsystem called the pipeline functionality so this hit, this touches a number of key you know, requests from users for a long time like you know, being able to run a long-running build and test and then and the Jenkins can go away in the middle and then come back later to pick up where it left off or being able to choreograph the, you know, orchest the automation that spans across multiple computers. Again, if you're doing CD, this kind of thing happens more and more often. Um, and then being able to define these things in code. And so there are a number of things in the area. We have the website. Um, we are about to launch website, hopefully, by the time this goes out there. Uh, that like highlight some of these things, so we hope to encourage people to try that out. On the Clubit side, um, you know, I mentioned about this PSC. So like, you know, the, the use it, we, we keep talking to these larger and larger companies where you're trying to deploy this like a CI/CD at a massive scale, and then so that gives us a perspective of the kind of software and kind of problem we need to be solving. So in particular, being able to run like hundreds or even possibly thousands of masters, being able to spin that up. So you know, we want to get to the point where, you know, like a developer in a company, big company could say, well, I'm going to start a new project and give me the whole thing, you know, the, give me the entire CD setup from like a source code hosting to, to project tracking to project management tools to build server to runtime environment, you know. And then a lot of companies are doing things like that. And then they, so we want to help in the part with Jenkins. And I mentioned that these organizations often wants to heavily customize what that Jenkins experience is to really meet that like a corporate standard. So we want to provide, you know, we pro provide means for these guys to do it and operate this entire cluster in it's a very small number of resources. So that's the um, that's the focus of the company. And, and we just released a new, you know, the, the first version of it. So we're quite excited about it. But we have a lot more, you know, we have a lot more feature we want to add to it. So the team is still very much working on it. Um, so those are yeah, what keeps me busy. Uh, but it, you know, me being me doesn't sort of stop me from working on these CD side projects. Um, so what's the one that I've uh, done lately? Uh, yeah, so there's a. Um, I do I do this I do this like a needle works. It's called cross stitching. Have you have you ever heard of it? Yes. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. So, yep. um, and I started picking up because my wife was doing it, and I thought it'd be good to pick up the same hobby that my wife likes. You know, just I guess a show of good goodwill. Uh, but um, I, and then so I, I started doing it, and I quickly realized it's essentially like you can turn any like a pixelated graphics into into this you know, piece of cross stitching, so I wrote this software that you can like you can it, it processes the PNG file or the basically image file, but it is like a threads they only come in certain colors, so like you want to approximate each pixel into different thread colors, but you don't want to use too many colors. So there's like like a, what's the optimal number of thread that you can use to like create this the picture that still looks like the original. Um, so, so that's the one of the projects that I've done. And it's kind of, you know, most of the people who I hang around with, the software development guys, they don't do any needleworks. And the people who do needleworks, they don't do any software development. So like I've been having trouble like finding audience to like, you know, talk about these things. But 
anyway, that's one of my you know, relatively decent projects. Well, now both Brent and mine, moms and wives, which are the only people that listen to this thing, now know about it. <laughs> so we got, you know, we got roughly four people at least. Yes, um, so keep, go ahead, Brent. <laughs> no, just saying, you know, it's interesting that you say that um, in looking through your blog, you, you've you been kind of a crafty person. I, I actually was pretty amazed that the Lego Earth sphere that you made was was really, really cool. And it was huge. You can't get the scale of it um, <laughs> in the picture. But uh, yeah, it turns out we said that thing was like a meter across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. So yeah, that was, an, that, that was also another software edit project. Like I do, I do like Lego. And I played that with uh, my daughter a lot, but again, uh, so one day, like we are putting together a, a sphere because it's easy shape for like a, a small child to make, but you know, it's too easy for a grown-up adult like me. So I started thinking in the back of my mind that like I wanted to build some bigger ones, and then I, if I if I write a program, then I can make it really like complete sphere. Um, and then, but then. And I, then I thought, well, if I'm going to make a big one, like it should be a little more interesting than just, let's say, like a blue ball. So I thought, well, if we built the like our actual Earth, and so that kind of got the project going. And you know, you have a the NASA, thanks to the thanks to this being a U.S. government agency, everything they do is in open in public domain. So they have this like a nice high resolution picture of Earth. They wrote a program that basically reverse map projects that back into the Lego surface so that it tells me exactly what color it, every tile needs to be. And, and the rest is just assembly. So um, after like after like a, you know, ten, ten, you know, one grant or so later, I had this like a, a huge Lego arse that uh, now I actually sit in our office. My wife didn't want to have it in her house. So like as soon as I was finished it, it's like, a, that's, that's I mean, a, gotta, did, so did you glue it? Is it permanent? Is it locked in? Like, uh, you, know, you know, like on um, the Lego movie? Did you did you put the, the crazy glue on it? No, I didn't. Um, and then it's, it's stable enough that I don't need to do that. Um, so, yeah, it kind of sticks around on its own. And some, every once in a while, like one of the board members is really playful. And then so he moves like one pixel from here to there. And like he discovered this new island in the earth. And, wait, wait. So, you know. Uh, so that yeah, I think they're not gluing it, turning out to be better. So have you ever, um, have you seen, you, you're talking to a fellow Lego nerd here. Um, <laughs> have you, have you ever looked at Lego Kuso and actually, or looked thought about submitting something to Kuso? Well, yeah, I, yeah, I looked at, I mean, I looked at the Kuso, um, I looked at the Kuso a number of times and I even bought that. You know, I, I bought quite a few sets from there, but I, I, I mean, this project, I don't think it does. It, I don't think it fits. The kind of thing they are looking for. So, uh, I mean, you can't. It's it's too expensive, as I said. It takes too many bricks to build. Well, it's uh, it's a lot of fun. I'm looking forward to eventually one of your designs is going to be on Kuso. Just let us know, um, and we'll put it out there so that we can help it win. Um, uh, thank you. I have the very early Kusos, so a couple of the you know which ended up all being you know different spaceships. I think including I think the first one was actually a Japanese uh, satellite, wasn't it? Yeah, I think it was called right. I think it was Hayabusa. One of yes. the uh, yeah, yeah. So I actually have a couple of those. Um, I uh, keep them in a safe somewhere. They're very valuable. They're more valuable than my kids. So <laughs> um, those are great. What What's the name of your of the app that you deploy? Is it on GitHub or is it where is the uh, cross stitch app? Uh, it's called like a DMC. Uh, I forgot the name of it, but DMC cross stitching tool or something. Yeah. So one of my very good friends, his wife, is doing a lot of cross stitch. 
and he is in fact a you know a developer so maybe i'll give him something to talk about to each other wow, you know wow. otherwise they don't the, otherwise they don't talk yeah and there's a whole bunch more about that okay, uh, so you know the when i was teaching it for example i started thinking about how to optimally move needles to minimize the thread consumption so like how to keep the uh <laughs> I have to keep the back of the uh, the cross stitching really clean, and like none of the things like the, my wife would like ever care about. And then like when I start commenting out these things about her work, like he, she feels like you know she's being criticized, and then so I kind of have to shut up. And then so if we, if I discover a fellow like an engineering minded like a cross stitching geek, there are a lot of things I'd have to talk about. That's Lean awesome. Six Sigma cross stitching. That's awesome. <laughs> I love it. That's so great. Well, we've uh, we've we've exhausted all the time, all the reasonable time, and unless you just want to keep going and ruin your work day, um, so you know we we appreciate everything you've done. Uh, you know we we love hearing about Cloud Bees and Jenkins and and uh, all the things that have kind of got us to where we are today. Um, is there is there anything else you know that you wanted to share with anybody? You know, as you've been thinking throughout the podcast, uh, and or anything you know as far as reading or learning that you'd like to help share with some people. Yeah, I think the, so I mentioned about the Jenkins 2.0, that's the new effort. Um, I'd love to, you know, I mean, we are trying to get the get that in the hands of as many people as possible. We are still, you know, we are in the early preview, preview phase. And then so I'd love to, if you're hearing this, I'd love to, you know, have you try out. Um, if we go to the Jenkins top page, I think we have a, we will have a very prominent link from there to get to 2.0 site. So that'd be one. Um, from the CloudBees angle, I think um, if you're, you know, if you're in a larger company trying to like more systematically approach CI/CD, I encourage you to check out the CloudBees Jenkins platform. So let's say those are two calls for actions. And then what about uh, what about reading? What are you reading right now, or what would you recommend other people to read? Mm, I don't read about the things in this industry so as much as I should be. So I don't I don't have anything in particular to recommend. Okay. I'm, uh, I'm a big Greg Egan fan. It's a science fiction book, but it's probably out of the scope for this. Oh, well, yeah. We've, we've had other people bring up really interesting books, a lot of logic books and science books, so no big deal. But anyway, yeah. So I think, you know, I think nowadays it's kind of difficult to get the... Because the books... I think the format of books for the new technology information, I think, is getting harder and harder. So... Um, Speaking of, you mentioned that you're having trying to get some information on the website by the time this came out. It'll be out in just a couple of days, so we're going to be testing your team's ability to uh, deliver that website before this podcast comes yeah, out. Yeah, that's so, right. That's awesome. Well, uh, again, so the best ways to get a hold of you, it looks like on Twitter, it's uh, Kosuke Kawa, is that correct? Yes. And then GitHub, Kosuke, uh, blog, as well as Kosuke.org. Um, are you on, do you have a YouTube as well? I don't think so. I think we should get some instructions on on cross stitch on YouTube. We'd like to have uh, you teaching other people how to do it. That's good. Idea. Teaching gonna... nerds, teaching nerds to cross stitch on YouTube. <laughs> I want to work on it. Awesome. Well, uh, thank you, everybody. Thanks for our listeners. Just like we want you to be able to get so social with Cloud Bees, uh, with Kosuke, with anybody, uh, you know, get out there and do that. We also want you to get social with us, right? So uh, at the Hot Isle, we've got Brent and myself. We're also on Twitter. You know, anything. A lot of these, uh, you know, sessions are all based on suggestions by you guys or other guests that we've had. Um, and we want to keep that going. We think everything's been fun so far. So please, you know, hit us up. Tweet us, get social, you know, mock us, anything. Tell us what we're doing wrong. Tell us when we say people's names or companies wrong. Any of those things are good to do. Um, so again, on behalf of the Hot Isle, I'm Brian Carpenter. I'm Brent Piatti. And Kosuke, again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Have a great week. Bye.